Welcome to episode 20 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 7th, 8th and 9th of September 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi, Mark. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, Brian. How are things with you? Yeah, very good. Thanks indeed, Mark. We're just working on the next print edition of the magazine now. And of course, we just launched the Fire and Security Matters Awards, about which you'll be speaking in due course, I believe. God, are we leading off with spoilers this week, Brian? You, you've ruined the fourth news story for us. But yep, absolutely. I'm really excited to talk about the Fire and Security Matters Awards, which we're talking about. In the bit, and you're right, it is a busy time. There's a lot going on, and we always cover the news first, as you know, and all the listeners know, Brian. Unfortunately, I'm afraid I can't start off with a good news story at all. Um, I was devastated to hear the news earlier this week that uh, Paul Fuller uh, sadly passed away after a short illness. Now, I know many of you know Paul, I've known him for a number of years. He was the Chief Fire Officer of Bedfordshire Fire and Rescue uh, Service, and yeah, he had a short illness and he passed away earlier this week um just devastating news to hear you know I, I could i'll talk about paul's career a bit in a moment but i just want to try and make this a bit more personal you know I, i've known paul for probably eight nine years now and you know i worked with him of him speaking for me at events he's written articles for fire safety matters and my previous publications as well he was so friendly and nice and would just do anything to help anybody. He was so supportive of me in my career. Uh, he so passionate about what he did, Brian, so passionate. He, he volunteered so much time to, to do things as well in the fire sector. You know, he's a chief fire officer, but he went outside of that remit, Brian. He, he worked as chairman of the Fire Sector Federation for a while, which is where I got to know him a bit better. He would go out of his way to do things for people like me, whether it was articles, speaking opportunities, advice. Just a thoroughly lovely individual who couldn't do enough to help people. And I was just literally reading a couple of days before he passed um, an interview, a fireside chat he did with the FIA. And you can see the passion for his family and what he did. And he does have a, a young family. And... He was due to retire this year and words can't put into proper context what a great guy he was and how much he contributed to the sector. But reading that article talking about you know, what his plans are in five years time, what he hopes to be doing now makes pretty tough reading. I mean, most importantly, I'd like to take this opportunity for everybody here at Western Business Media to pass on my deepest condolences to his friends and family. It was a shock when I heard the news I can't stress enough just how badly and sadly missed Paul will be. Um, you know, a little bit more about Paul for those of you that don't know about him. Um, you know, Paul was born back in 1960, she reported in the article. He joined the Fire and Rescue Service at just 18. His career path suddenly took him across roles in West Midlands, West Sussex, Staffordshire and Wiltshire Fire and Rescue Services. In addition to frontline firefighting services, he also concentrated his attention on operations, fire prevention, training and various command functions. Uh, you know, he, he's held 
various posts in national fire organizations like we've said the fire tech the federations and charities he was also had a spell as a chair on the board of trustees for the children's burns trustees and he was a chair of trustees of the firefighters charity and i know that was a particular charity very close to his heart um he was also a president of uh, cfoa the chief fire officers association between 2013 and 2014 and he was chief fire officer at Bedfordshire fire and rescue service since 2002 um he was also made a freeman of the city of london uh, in 2008 he was also very justifiably awarded a cbe by the queen in 2016 the new year's honors list and i could remember writing that article of him getting that thing like there was <laughs> like it was just yesterday um so a great guy um thank you paul for all the support you showed me it was very little part of what you did of your job you didn't have to afford me the time that you did and i'm very grateful for it um i don't know there's anything else you want to add brian there is indeed, Mark. There have been many tributes paid in the wake of Paul's passing, as you might expect. On Twitter, those who've offered words of condolence include former London Fire Commissioner Danny Coton, the ASFP, the Avon Fire and Rescue Service, Hertfordshire Fire and Rescue Service, the West Yorkshire Fire and Rescue Service, and also the Humberside Fire and Rescue Service. Now, Helen Nellis, Mark, the Lord Lieutenant of Bedfordshire, has commented, a valued member of the Bedfordshire community, Paul was a fantastic leader and a wonderful friend and colleague. He touched the lives of all who knew him. Our thoughts are very much with his family and all of the Bedfordshire Fire and Rescue Service officers at this time. Zoe Billingham, Her Majesty's Inspector of Fire and Rescue Services, and also a former Fire and Rescue Service Inspector for Bedfordshire, has stated, This news is utterly heartbreaking. Paul was a fine man determined to serve the public right until the very end. I admire him for all that he did for the Fire and Rescue Service, both locally and nationally. All of my thoughts are with his family and colleagues at this very sad time. In addition, Mark, uh, Luton South MP Rachel Hopkins has tweeted, I'm very sad to hear the news of Paul's death. My thoughts and condolences are with his family, friends and Bedfordshire Fire and Rescue Service colleagues at this very difficult time. Now, as you mentioned, Mark, back in February, Paul spoke with the Fire Industry Association's business liaison specialist, Adam Richardson, one of the FIA's very popular fireside chat articles that had been running to great acclaim. At the time, Paul observed that he was drawn to the sense of service in the fire industry, and he stated, it's all about helping to try and create a safer, natural and built environment. Everybody is trying to do their little bit to make the world safer and better and to learn from terrible things that have happened over the years. I just like the sense of doing something worthwhile. The whole fire sector is a friendly place in which to be, and you have, have a sense of belonging to it. Commenting on the Bedfordshire Fire and Rescue Service, Paul observed, in terms of making the Bedfordshire Fire and Rescue Service more innovative and accepting of the new technologies, I pride what we do on being innovative because we do spend quite a lot on firefighting innovations. We know some products that others have gone for and we haven't. I try to encourage people just to have ideas. Recently, as part of our COVID recovery group, we try to make people think differently. We've even separated meetings or parts of meetings, such that the first part is all about expanding ideas. It doesn't matter how ridiculous they are. If something comes into your head, put it on the table for discussion. And just to reiterate your own words, Mark, all of the team members here at Fire Safety Matters send our sincerest condolences to Paul's family, friends and many fire sector colleagues. Yeah, he will be sadly, sadly missed. Um, OK, moving on to our next news story, Brian. I think this is one that you wanted to cover. What have you got for us? It is, Mark, and it's something that was in the national press. 
Uh, the serious failure of a smoke ventilation system that resulted in the building acting like a broken chimney left residents' only escape route smoke logged during the New Providence War fire. That's the verdict of a report just released by the London Fire Brigade. The report confirms that the fire that occurred on Friday the 7th of May began in a consumer unit, otherwise known more commonly as the fuse board, in an eighth-floor apartment. Due to the severity of the fire, more testing is going to be needed to find out exactly how the consumer unit did fail. The fire then travelled out of an open balcony window. At the same time, smoke poured into the corridor through a flat door that had accidentally been kept open. The London Fire Brigade's provisional investigation into the fire has found that, in this particular instance, ACM cladding panels attached to the building's exterior did not significantly contribute to the external spread of the fire. Interestingly, Mark, the response to the New Providence War fire has demonstrated the significant changes the London Fire Brigade has made since the Grenfell Tower episode. For instance, increased numbers of firefighters and appliances are now initially sent to high-rise fires as standard practice. Further to this, new evacuation procedures have been introduced. There are now improved communications between the control room and firefighters on the ground, and fire escape codes have also been introduced. On arrival at New Providence Walk, firefighters immediately focused on responding to a number of rescue calls received by London Fire Brigade's control room. That response resulted in 35 rescues on the scene, Mark, 22 of them involving fire escape hoods. Overall, only two people were taken to hospital as a result of the fire. Now, the initial findings from senior fire investigators show that the smoke detectors on the 8th floor communal corridor failed to operate both the automatic opening vent and the cross-corridor fire doors. It's the responsibility of the building owner or manager to make sure that the AOV, which is designed to ventilate and extract smoke during a fire to help residents escape, operates in the intended manner. Following the release of its preliminary fire investigation report, the London Fire Brigade is urging all those responsible for high-rise buildings, especially so those individuals in charge of properties that no longer support a stay-put strategy, as was the case at New Providence Wharf, in fact, to check their fire safety measures, including smoke ventilation systems, such as AOVs, as an absolute matter of priority. These should be regularly inspected and any issues acted upon as a matter of urgency. The spread of fire on the outside of the building from floors 8 to 11 is believed to have been facilitated by timber decking on the balconies, not the ACM panels. Now, government advice in this area, Mark, issued back in January, states, and I quote, balconies should not assist fire spread along the external wall. Balconies, including compostable materials, may, may not meet an appropriate standard of safety and could pose a risk to the health and safety of residents and other building users. The London Fire Brigade is now asking all building owners and managers to check the materials used on external balconies and consider whether they could contribute to the spread of fire and, if deemed necessary, modify them as soon as possible. The Brigade's parallel investigation into possible breaches of fire safety regulations at New Providence Wharf at the time of the fire is now continuing, Mark. Do you have any views on this one? Well, actually, this is an interesting one because I remember talking to you on the day that this happened and you and I discussed at length the, the national media coverage and, and, and some other, actually, you know, business-to-business -business coverage of this event, people were very quick to make the accusation that this fire must have been caused, or the spread of it must have been aided by ACM cladding. That, that, was, that was what it was uh, presumed, wrongly presumed. As the Fire and Rescue Service has said, ACM did not contribute to this. And it's one of the things I wanted to pick up on this, Brian, one of the things that we've got to learn from Grenfell is we can't just presume that cladding or ACM is definitely the root cause or the spread of a fire. It's very dangerous to jump to uh, assumptions on these things. And you and I talked about it, and we're very careful not to report on major fires until we've got 
more information. And obviously what you've just gone through in great detail shows what the findings have been and and it wasn't what other people were claiming and that's why we're a lot more careful when we talk about things on there and I just think that's just worth mentioning because we can't and it shouldn't just be a presumption that ACM is the root cause of all evil to do with this and there does seem to particularly in the national media or certain sectors of business business media don't necessarily focus directly on fire safety but just cover it it's a presumption that that is a dangerous presumption but there are other things to take out of this too, Brian. And I just want to finish off on this story by just sharing something that the London Fire Brigade Deputy Commissioner Richard Mills said, if that's all right. So he said in a quote, a smoke ventilation system inside New Province Wharf acted like a broken chimney, in turn leading to a potentially life-threatening situation. Had it not been for the exceptional actions of our firefighters and 999 control officers, this incident could have had tragic consequences. He went on to say... Despite our response to this fire and drawing out many lessons learned from the Grenfell Tower fire, in many cases we are sadly still not seeing a culture change in all those responsible for fire safety in high-rise buildings. The new province wharf fire needs to be viewed as an urgent wake-up call to all building owners and managers. Look at the fire safety solutions inside your building and take action if they're not performing correctly. It's too late to wait for a fire to see if they work. Obviously, I would echo every word that Richard Mills said there. And yeah, it's it, 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 it's, a, it's a chilling message that this could have been an absolute multiple fatality tragedy. Thankfully, it wasn't. It's bad enough that two people went to hospital. But the, the message there is it could have been worse, but it should never get to that stage where it's worth it. And Rich is absolutely right. This focus, this culture change still needs to develop. And, you know, we've done a number of sessions that you can listen on this topic on webinars. Um, go to fsmatters.com on the webinars tab. We've done a number of webinars that you can listen to for free and get CPD for on high-rise buildings and fire safety related. So I'd urge you to go back and this is how we've had... Russ Timpson from the Tall Buildings Network talk on a couple of webinars on there, and he really is a true expert. And what I would say is, Russ used to say to me long before Grenfell that it's going to take a tragedy in this country to actually see real change happen. And we all hope, Brian, that real change is happening after the independent review of fire safety by Dame Judith Hackett and the new fire safety bill and the new um, proposed building safety bill. So we hope change is coming, but as was pointed out here, still a lot of work to be done. So I think I'll throw it back to you now, Brian, because I think you want to introduce our first interviewee of this episode. Our first guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Dr. Tony Cash, who first appeared as our guest on episode 10. Tony is an experienced fire safety and emergency planning professional whose most recent engagement saw him take on the role of senior fire engineer at Heathrow Airport Limited. Prior to this, Tony enjoyed a period of consultancy as infrastructure director for Trenton Fire and also served in the role of senior engineer at Transport for London, during which time he was responsible for the coordination of plan reviews with the fire authority. Tony is a fellow of the Institution of Fire Engineers and also international president of the Rail Industry Fire Association. Earlier this week, I chatted with Tony about Project Kestrel, a new initiative whereby the City of London Crime Prevention Association has partnered with the London Fire Brigade and the Skills Network to offer frontline security personnel the opportunity to gain a nationally recognised certificate of learning in fire awareness. Firstly, 
Tony, can you explain some of the underpinning detail of Project Kestrel and also how you came to be involved in this initiative? Thank you, Brian. Yes, it was in early 2020, just before lockdown one, that the London Fire Brigade organised a large-scale exercise in which all the city's blue light responders worked in partnership with the City of London Corporation to resolve some complex operational challenges. As the responders arrived, there was information available to help their teams, but it became obvious that this information could be improved. When responding, emergency services personnel are hungry for quality information, and having the right information at the right time from the right person can make all the difference. Even at false alarm incidents, getting reliable information means the impact of disruptive events can be kept to minimum. It seems such an obvious thought that this kind of information must already be available, but this hasn't always been the case, and this is when I became involved. The range and depth of my experience in emergency planning, command and control, and the effective resolution of complex incidents resulted in the London Fire Brigade asking me to author a structured learning package for security personnel. In collaboration with the Safer City Partnership in the City of London, the concept was further developed using a number of fact-finding meetings and the project team appointed David Ward Associates and myself to bring the platform to fruition through a one-day workshop at the Dowgate Fire Station in the City of London under the watchful eyes of Borough Commander David Bulbrook. And what sort of training is available for the individual operatives who take part in Project Kestrel Tony? Familiarisation and awareness training will be provided online and available to anyone in the security profession in a non-technical way. It'll upskill security operatives, enabling them to be personally developed and add greater value to themselves and to their employers by recognising the all-too-often occurring mistakes, acts or omissions that could create false alarms, for example, or allow a minor incident to escalate. The training is modular and it's supported by learning checks along its path. The style is engaging, it draws on the learner's imagination and it makes use of striking visual imagery to embed messages into the deep unconscious memory. As part of the programme, there's talk of an information package for the blue light responders. Could you expand on the detail here, please, Tony? Sure, Brian. Now, it's not particularly about what the blue light emergency responders need to know. They're very well trained and they're absolutely ready for most eventualities. The learning programme will include instructions for security personnel on how to develop a verbal and visual information package that they can hand over to blue light responders in the event of an incident. The training in particular is tiered, so it develops all levels of service delivery using appropriate language and content for the various stages of an escalating incident. A key theme of Project Kestrel is a desire to make the City of London a safer place for all. Where does the fire safety focused element play its part in this, Tony? Well, Brian, the individuals who have for a long time been considered the eyes and ears of the city in circumstances where, for example, COVID-19 and other disruptive factors have and may continue to cause premises to be otherwise vacant and vulnerable to decline, will significantly benefit from participation in this project. It's by using people who are readily available, they're on scene, they've got the knowledge, the familiarity for the premises, and enabling them to pass on information in a timely manner to the emergency services that will really generate the enhanced safety from this programme. Another aspect of Project Kestrel is support for the London Fire Cadets. 
How will this manifest itself in practice? Brian, we thought very hard about this and we considered the corporate social responsibility benefits that can be accrued by upskilling a significant proportion of underrepresented groups working within the security sector. So these populations themselves will benefit from improved opportunities in the workplace and deliver greater and more diverse safety and security within the city. But recognising also the challenges that the security profession faces and minimising any on-cost in service charges, the project team agreed the following. The charges to set up and maintain the platform would be nominal and would be kept to a minimal throughout its lifetime. Any excesses would go directly to charitable good causes, including support for the London Fire Cadets and for the yet-to-be-established London Fire Brigade Museum. As I've said, the charge has been kept deliberately low and the intention is to keep costs low and add real value. In recent years, members of security teams have also been tasked with fire safety related duties, Tony. Do you feel this is a trend that will inevitably develop even further as time progresses? As we discussed earlier, it's the individual on the ground, the eyes and ears of the City of London, who's best placed to understand the surroundings where they're working or are likely to be working and to ensure that all the fire prevention and precautionary measures are readily available and fit for purpose in the event of an emergency. The early indications are that the security profession is hungry for this kind of capability and early adopters have already demonstrated that the appeal of this kind of structured learning can only grow. Building a Safer Future Charter has launched its Charter Champion Company status to help businesses actively drive the systemic culture change required to put building safety first. The Charter, which is open to all, will help companies identify potential issues and forge continuous improvement plans to advance their overall approach and performance on leadership and indeed culture in relation to building safety. This is absolutely critical if further tragedies like the Grenfell Tower fire where perceived failures in terms of leadership and culture seem to have been key issues, are to be avoided in the future. Through robust self-assessment, benchmarking and independent verification and their participation in this process, companies will be able to identify ways in which they can help to reduce their overall risk profile. They'll also be able to share examples of good practice and showcase them to the wider sector through the Charter's Learning and Excellence Hub. Now, the first 12 companies who are demonstrating real leadership here have signed up to complete the robust benchmarking and independent assessment process. Those organisations include Kia, Mace, MHS Homes, Persimmon Homes, Salix Homes, United Living, The Vistry Group, Waits and also Wilmot Dixon. The findings of Dame Judith Hackett's independent review of building regulations and fire safety realise the development of the Building a Safer Future Charter by a group of early adopters, including contractors, housing associations and local authorities, all of them with a vision of an industry committed to putting people's safety first. The Building a Safer Future Charter has been highlighted by Dame Judith and the Industry Safety Steering Group as a key mechanism for leading the culture change that's required. The benchmarking and verification process is now open for participation from across the construction sector. All UK organisations involved in the built environment can proactively participate and demonstrate their commitment to building safety by becoming registered signatories to the Charter and, if appropriate, progress to undertaking the Charter Champion benchmarking process. This is particularly the case for duty holders, Mark. 
Commenting on this move, Lord Stephen Greenhalgh, the Minister for Building Safety, has said, we are taking firm action to ensure that we never repeat the mistakes of the past, with this charter representing a major step forward in terms of delivering much-needed culture change in the built environment sector. I warmly welcome its introduction and commend the 12 organisations already signed up to become charter champions. I would strongly encourage more companies to become involved, especially so those who will be playing a key role in the future building safety regulatory regime. Peter Baker, Chief Inspector of Buildings at the Health and Safety Executive and a guest on episode 19 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, has explained self-assessment, benchmarking and independent verification are absolutely important elements of a robust system to enable businesses to properly lead, manage and control major building safety risks. Businesses across the industry need to start preparing now for the new building safety regime. The Chartered Champions Initiative is a valuable contribution to driving the necessary change in culture and performance across the sector to ensure that residents are safe and feel safe in their own homes. Also, Mark, Mike Robinson, the CEO of the British Safety Council, has told Fire Safety Matters, the Charter is a key mechanism for delivering the culture change badly needed by the sector. Becoming a registered signatory means organisations can proactively demonstrate their commitment to building safety. The whole sector has a collective responsibility to safeguard the people living in their buildings and ensure these are safe places to live, both now and into the future. Further, Mark Robinson has stated, we would encourage participation in the Chartered Champion Initiative from across the construction and wider built environment sectors, and in particular, from the duty holders required under the new legislation to undertake the benchmarking process. We very much look forward to seeing the Chartered Champions group grow as others who also realise the benefits of becoming part of this important scheme. What are your thoughts on this story, Mark? It's it's a positive story, isn't it? You know, the charter, which we said is open to all the aims of it, is to help companies identify potential issues and and develop continuous improvement towards improving performance and leadership and culture in relation to building safety. That should be applauded, Brian. I think one of the key things I took out of that is that the the three key elements they want to bring into that is the self-assessment, benchmarking, independent verification, plus participation in a process like this is what will lead to a reduction in risks and that is something that we obviously all want to work towards we talked about in other news stories um, on this episode of the podcast that eliminating more and more risks is key to keeping people and property safe so yeah I mean it's great to see 12 companies have already signed up obviously the more that can sign up the more best practice and and driving of change there can be to these kinds of processes but there were some interesting comments that you didn't quite cover there Brian um, that, that you did in your article which I wanted to share so Dame Judith Hackett who was obviously the independent chair of the independent review of fire safety and building safety post Grenfell she commented I'm delighted to see the former launch of the Charters Champion Scheme. My congratulations go to Amanda Long and her team for the way in which they built upon approaches which have been tried, tested and proved effective in other sectors in order to create this initiative. I have consistently called for the built environment sector to recognise the need for culture change, which can only happen when leaders in the sector stand up and are prepared to demonstrate what good looks like and to be held accountable for its delivery. I look forward to watching the Charter Champions cohort grow as others see the benefits of becoming part of this important programme, which offers a real market differentiation opportunity. So, yeah, I think when you look at what Dame Judith said there, I think she put it far better than I could. It's great to see 12 companies involved already, and big companies too, as you've listed there. But 
this should be a springboard to more and more taking part. And you'll only really see real change the more and more people are embracing this. And it has been a successful model in other sectors. Not really reinventing the wheel or doing something new and original here. It might be new and original for this sector, in a sense, but it's not for other sectors. And it seems like a, you know, a thoroughly welcomed move from my perspective so yeah i think i think it's positive and while we're on the positivity train brian we're gonna move on to our final news story if that's all right so this is something that i told everybody was coming when you interviewed me in a past edition of the podcast in fact it was the last one but i can now confirm that entries are now open for the inaugural fire and security matters awards that is the official awards of this publication fire safety matters and security matters you know, we've done awards, uh, the Safety and Health Excellence Awards, for a number of years now, and they became the biggest in the sector and the biggest networking event. But they stand for something, Brian. They stand for celebrating excellence in health and safety. The key job that health and safety practitioners do in keeping people safe. And the natural extension for us was to do that on the fire and security side, because we've had categories of fire and security as part of the Safety and Health Excellence Awards before. But there was more and more people saying they wanted to see it really separated out because... It just couldn't cover enough ground. These awards are the perfect opportunity for anyone listening here to enter themselves, a colleague, a supplier, a product, their organisation, a team they work with, a project to be recognised for the key role you guys do. And I say this a lot in keeping people and property safe. The entries are free to enter. Honestly, only take you a few minutes of your time to enter. But I can tell you, in my opinion, the best part of my job is seeing the excitement of people when they get shortlisted for these awards. And far, far too often, people... This, this profession and the health and safety profession can often be um, lamented from certain sections of the media and it may not necessarily come across as the sexiest sector to work in. But it's key. You keep people and property safe. You save lives. It's it's essential. And we all know that in terms of fire, for example, a total loss of a fire often leads to the end of a company, to be quite frank. Two-thirds of businesses that suffer a major fire never actually get trading again. And on the security side of things, it's never been more prevalent than now, whether it's cybersecurity because of the digital era that we're in of protecting people from that side, counter-terror, you know, CCTV, access control. It's again about keeping people safe and secure in premises too. So you have got until the 30th of November to enter these awards. It's completely free to do so. You can enter any of the categories as many times as you want with different entries. It has all the T's and C's and criteria on the website. And just so you, because on the fire side, with the categories we've got a fire innovation of the year, Fire Manufacturer of the Year, Fire Safety Installer or Integrator of the Year, Fire Safety Project of the Year, Fire Safety Manager of the Year, Fire Safety Team of the Year. In the security categories, for those of you that cover that as well, is Security Manufacturer of the Year, Guarding Company of the Year, Security Installer Strict Integrator of the Year, Security or Risk Manager of the Year, Security Company of the Year, Security Team of the Year, and Security Project of the Year. Now, These awards have already got such backing from the industry and we're so, so grateful for the support that we've got. Um, Obviously, our headline sponsor I'd like to thank, which is ACO. We've also got Apollo Fire Detectors and TO Fire. 
sponsors already. But the amount of industry bodies and associations that are involved in this is unbelievable. We're doing them in partnership with the FIA, the Fire Industry Association. We're very, very proud to be bringing these awards in partnership with them. But there's also so many other people involved in it and supporting it actively. BAFAR, the Institute of Fire Safety Managers are supporting it. National Association of Healthcare Fire Officers. The Independent Fire Engineering Distributors Association. The Security Institute. The National Security Inspectorate. Security Systems and Alarm Inspection Board, ACES UK, the Institute of Strategic Risk Management, the International Foundation for Protection Officers, and SSAIB, I should say, as well, are involved in this. So such there is not anywhere else getting such widespread industry support. And why are they doing it? Well, the same reason I hope you guys take five, ten minutes out of your day to enter yourself, a colleague, or anybody else, a product or a project, because they truly believe that it's worth celebrating the great work that you do. And yes, it will culminate in a gala dinner at the Rico Arena in Coventry. And for those of you that correct me, yes, I'm aware that the Rico Arena is about to change name because it's got a new sponsor, but I thought I'd sit with the Rico Arena for now. We're going to announce the shortlist in January next year and the awards due itself at the Rico will be on the 28th of April next year. And it's hosted by popular impressionist and uh, TV comedian Alistair McGowan. I've worked with him on other stuff before. He's hilarious, and I think you guys will really, really enjoy him. There'll be hundreds of people in the room networking. It will be the biggest networking do the fire and security sector has in the calendar next year. So I'd encourage you all to enter. Please do. It's, it's well worth doing. And if you want to enter, just go to the website, which is firesecurityawards.com so I'll repeat that it's firesecurityawards.com firesecurityawards.com only take you a few minutes to enter well worth doing now Brian I know this is something that you're particularly proud of because you're going to be overseeing the entries process for us and overseeing the judging because the judging is being done by not by us you know you can, we can't rig it it's independent uh, judges and the organisations I listed earlier, people like the NSIS, CIB, etc. But I know this is something you wanted to do just when you joined the company and, and finally we've, we've got it open and ready to go. So I just wondered if you wanted to share any of your thoughts on it. Yes, very much so, Mark. Well, you mentioned earlier there, why are awards important? Well, I've worked on several award schemes in my 30 plus years as a professional journalist and editor. I've served as a judge on many industry awards, Mark, uh, project managed such schemes and also organised judging panels. So I do have a pretty good depth of experience here when it comes to the actual process itself. Now, in terms of the companies who enter award schemes, they can benefit from what's effectively free marketing, Mark. It's fair to say that business awards can be an overlooked tool in the marketing toolbox. Just being shortlisted can improve brand awareness and help promote the core values of any business. A third-party endorsement is also a key byproduct of the whole process, Mark. The visibility and prestige that come from winning an industry award can help to win new business, which is particularly important at the present time. Awards entrants also benefit by dint of benchmarking themselves against their competitors, Mark. Now, of course, there's also the not insignificant benefit of credibility here. Being shortlisted for a robust award scheme proves to the outside world that the work transacted by any business, a team or individual is a judge to have merit by their peers in the sector. On top of that, Mark, there's also employee motivation. Knowing there's the potential for industry recognition can spur colleagues on to first-class performance in the workplace. As an extension of that, successful companies are then able to attract the talent that will continue to nurture and help to grow the business in the years ahead. So the message here, Mark, really is to all the, in the fire industry, 
please do take part in the Foreign Security Matters Awards. And to reiterate what you said, access the website at www.firesecurityawards.com and submit your entries. Well, that's a great roundup of the news on this month's edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. But you don't have to wait for this podcast to be able to get all the latest news that Brian puts out there. You can go to our website, www.fsmatters.com, or you can Google it, Fire Safety Matters. And we've got all the latest news, prosecutions, products and services on there. Huge archive of webinars and upcoming webinars that you can get CPD from. Of course, you can get CPD just by reading the magazine. And that comes out four times a year. And you can sign up to get it for free in print or digital format by going to our website, which I said is fsmatters.com. And while you're on the website there, you can also sign up to get our weekly e-newsletter which over 50,000 people do but we have launched a new aspect to that website which is fire and security's careers so if you go to fsmatters.com and click on the career hub option around the top navigation we've got loads of jobs that you can apply for we've got loads of training courses you can apply to go on we've got the cpd webinars and career advice going across there so it's well worth having a look at that. if you're out of work for any reason at the moment or looking for a new opportunity plenty of fire safety and security jobs available to you there but actually if you're happy in your role and you want career development great articles to read there but also training courses from great companies like tavcom um ifida asfp fia so many acronyms in this sector but you know what they stand for they're all there all in one place all free to use you can even upload your cv into a careers library so people can actually if you're looking for a job they can search our archive to see if you look open for work so you could be headhunted that way so please go to our website fsmatters.com and all that's available to you in the meantime brian why don't you introduce for us who our second guest on this edition of the podcast is now our second guest on this edition of the fire safety matters podcast is don randall mbe chair of the city of london crime prevention association don served in the city of london police from 1969 until 1995 with a remit focused on counter-terrorism and fighting fraud in 2008 he was appointed head of security at the bank of england and in 2013 as the bank's first chief information security officer don is a former master of the worshipful company of security professionals a previous winner of the association of security consultants prestigious inbert prize and a fellow of the security institute on this episode of the podcast Don also turns his attentions towards Project Kestrel, outlining the method of educational delivery, the CPD elements, and also the charitable causes set to benefit from this excellent initiative. Don, could you outline the main reasons why Project Kestrel has been created? Yeah, and thanks very much for the opportunity, uh, Brian, as always. Um, yeah, one of the things we, we haven't done is, amazingly so, and I've missed it, is collaboration between the private security industry and all the various things we're involved with and, and the fire brigade. And um, when the uh, when I was talking to Dave Balbrook, who is just about to retire as the commander of the Dowgate Hill Fire Station in the city, and he talk, we talked about fire safety and security. And, and you know, Brian, over the years, there's been a devolvement of uh, certain regulations and responsibilities. And, and Dave said, well, you know, why don't we, could we pull together a, a, an awareness of fire safety and security, primarily for the private sector security, but for other parties as well. And so uh, and sort of, we, we looked at each other and thought, well, why haven't we done this sooner? And, and that's how it came about. It was as simple as that. And, and then I'll talk a little bit later on, if I may, about the, the charitable spin-offs that come out of this. So, and also 
the assistance and help we've received primarily from David Ward um, and from the Security Institute and the Corporation of London. So it really is, you, you know what I'm like on partnerships, Brian, and uh, over the years and how we've missed one merging with the fire brigade, I don't know, but it, it is going to be another example of public-private partnership, as was Project Griffin, as was uh, as is CWSC and, and the Crime Prevention Association. So it, it, it's really building on historic facts and data where we know this does and can work, Brian. And what's the target audience for this initiative, Don? Uh, the target audience initially is the, is the private security sector uh, officers and managers. And just to give you a flavour of that, it varies building to building and location to location, Brian. But you know, private security companies have to educate their, their their staff in fire safety and security. And when we spoke to a couple of the principal providers, um, Raj Pradham and uh, Ashley Fernandez of um, ICTS and Bidvest, respectfully, um, they said that this is this is fantastic because. Um, you know, not only will we be able to authoritatively educate and train and make aware our security personnel, they also get two CPD points. It's cost effective and, it, um, and it's online. So the abstraction time is minimal in the, in the, in the, in the security person's daily, daily um, environment. So initially, the target audience is private security. Subsequently, I can see facilities managers, building managers, and others who have a fire safety security responsibility uh, being part of the course. And, and there's no restrictions, Brian. And is Project Kestrel actively supported by the Blue Light Services, Don? And if so, in what ways exactly? Yeah, OK. So we did a couple of things, and, and a good point. Um, we were concerned that it didn't contradict or contravene or even overlap any of the blue light service response. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're conscious of the, the, the newly emerging you know, fire as a weapon. And we were, were keen to ensure that we, as I say, we didn't cross any paths with both of the, the, the police, the ambulance, and of course, the fire brigade. And so as we've done before, we've paired up with the City of London Police who reviewed the content from a policing perspective um, we've liaised with London Ambulance and, of course, the Fire Brigade. So all of all of whom are supportive, and and it actually helps them. It's a bit like Griffin in its early days, Brian, and you'll recall where, you know, the the officers attending a fire safety security situation can anticipate if they've got people in that in that location that have completed this course, <clears throat> have an expectation of what to find because part of the course is actually saying to the the security operatives, this is what the fire police and ambulance services will be expecting you to have done having done the course so you know we've, we've tried to cover it from a to z if you if you if i'm a, if i can put it that way brian and is project kestrel solely an, an online initiative don yes absolutely um no intention to, to do it face to face you know in these difficult times brian with additional um training coming out from the sia and, and various, you know, the, the, the ACT initiatives, you know, we've, we've deliberately moved away from actually abstraction time, face-to-face. -face. Um, but, of course, it doesn't detract from security officers talking to police or the fire, but it is purely online, Brian. Now, Fire Safety Matters and Security Matters magazines are both huge supporters of continuing professional development. You mentioned CPD points earlier in the conversation, Don. Could you elaborate on that a bit, please? Yeah, we, we liaised uh, with uh, Peter Labry, the, the new chairman of the Security Institute, 
and um, and also Rick Mountfield, Mountfield, sorry, and they've agreed that the course content is sufficient to uh, for everybody who passes and is certificated um, to receive two CPD points for the the course attendance and passing. We're also factoring in Brian. Uh, you know, you, you can't, this is not a tick box, um, although it's a question and answer, it's not a tick box, you can't fail and then keep doing it. And I think we're putting a margin of, you know, three strikes and out, and you can't come back for a certain period of time. So you, you, you know, we've tried to, we've tried to justify the Institute's support in giving those CPD points. And I know you've spoken with Tony, who is the, the author of the content, as well as some of the senior fire brigade people to ensure that those CPD points are, are well earned, Brian. And finally, Don, can you detail the charitable causes that Project Kestrel is directly supporting? Yeah, I, I mean, just to uh, repeat, the collaboration to get us to where we are is the London Fire Brigade, the City of London Crime Prevention Association, and supported by the Corporation of London. And as you know, we had the, uh, an informal launch with the Lord Mayor last Thursday and the Deputy Fire Commissioner and John Baradell the town clerk of the Corporation of London. But the two spin-offs are that the charities, and we, we do expect this to make, um, it, it's got a cost of £25 to participate. And we anticipate once the startup costs have been repaid, that we will have a hopefully a sufficient of charitable funds, which will go to two causes. One will be the, the London Fire Brigade Museum Restoration and their Cadet Corps. And the other one, via the City of London Crime Prevention Association, will go to CWS, the maintaining of CWSC, you know, the Cross-Sector Safety and Security Communications Initiative we launched in 2011 prior to the Olympics. And more importantly, it will enable us to give some modest funding to the nine regional uh, offices of CWSC. So we anticipate that um, there will be opportunities here. One piece goes. 50% to the fire brigade and 50% to CWSC. If we find that the CWSC funding is more than we need, that will drop back into the City of London Crime Prevention Association uh, pot. And as you know, Brian, we try and make up to about £25,000 of charitable donations a year from the CPA. I think we've done about half a million over the 18 years I've been chairman. Um, so it, it, it's got a. It, if we if we brim over the top of the needs of CWSC, it will fall back into the City of London Crime Prevention, and we'll make charitable donations there. So that's the spin-off, and you know, two good causes, Brian. guest this time around is Warren Spencer, Managing Director of Blackhurst Buds Listers and a regular contributor to the Fire Safety Matters podcast. As a fire safety focused legal practitioner, Warren has prosecuted more cases under the fire safety order than anyone else. In conversation with Mark, Warren offers a review of last month's online conference organised by Blackhurst Bud in conjunction with Fire Safety Matters. The subject matter for discussion was enforcement of the fire safety order. Warren also answers some questions posed by delegates. Morning, Warren. How are you? I am very well, thank you, Mark. And yourself? 
Yeah, good, good. Well, obviously, you and I have kept busy. We did our digital conference, as promised, on the fire safety order back in May. For those that didn't go, Warren, can you give us a little bit of insight on what you covered, please? Yeah, there were seven case studies where I just went into perhaps a little bit more detail than I would usually do on presentations about what the cases were about from a factual point of view and also how they illustrated how the order worked and works with you know what judges have said and, and the points that have been raised by defence teams and prosecution teams. Um, one was a, um, a fatality, a very sad fatality in a nursing home. Another involved um, where pub, pub brewery companies um, still require consents from their tenants before they make structural alterations. And the fact that we're still requiring consents gives them an element of control, which means that the order still applies to them. Uh, and also um, cases where certain sentences have, have been um, administered by the courts and one case where there was a proceeds of crime application. Um, so just, just various examples uh, of how the order has worked in practice. Well, you and I were talking off air earlier about a couple of good questions that came in and we said, you know, what, we should probably quickly cover them now so we all can have a flavour of what was discussed. So we did have this question come in that we talked about earlier. So one particular delegate said, we have a lot of issues with renting out rooms in a house, which then becomes a hotel B&B. Owner or lease is absent. When is a rented house a hotel and therefore subject to the fire safety order? Do you want to tackle that one quickly, Warren? Yeah, it's a, tri it's a tricky one um, because one of the, the most difficult scenarios for the order is is perhaps the kind of student house situation where all students are living independently but sometimes live almost as a family and cook meals together and things like that. So, uh, as we know, the, the order doesn't apply to domestic premises, um, but where premises are shared, it applies to the common parts. Uh, and where you've got that those domestic premises being rented out um, privately to individuals such as students or even where it's kind of a and b or a hotel which has then turned into uh, an HMO, um, then the order applies again to the common parts. And what, what becomes difficult is this grey area of, as to whether people are living domestically as a family or as one unit or whether they're living independently of each other. And I think that's the difference. Uh, and people start quoting the Housing Act to, to try to delineate the two. Um, but really, it's the fire safety order we have to turn to when we're prosecuting under the fire safety order. And, and so I gave a few cases where... Um, that was the situation. And, and the question is, it all depends on each individual circumstances, you know, but certainly I've had a number of cases where hotels have turned into HMOs, um, but, but really the order applies to both. So um, obviously a hotel, a commercial premises, but, but an HMO where people are living independently, the order applies as it would to a block of flats. We'll just go over one of the questions that was asked, and, and it, was, it was going on from the examples you gave. And the delegate asked, so Warren, who issued proceedings under the POCA, the Proceeds of Crime Act? That's the Proceeds of Crime Act in, in a case where the fire service issued a prohibition notice against a wedding venue um, and the owner of the venue simply ignored the prohibition notice. Uh, and so what we did was we took the view that, that any money he made by ignoring the prohibition notice was effectively proceeds of crime. And um, you, you then have to go to some licensed sort of uh, forensic accountants who will look at the income from the defendant and work out 
whether or not, first of all, the, the Proceeds of Crime Act apply, and secondly, how they apply, because there are two ways in which they can apply. Money directly benefited from committing a crime, but also there, there are some provisions which allow for further recoveries of monies where we, we say that it's a, a lifestyle crime, so that the crime has been committed more than once and over a long period of time. And in the particular case that I dealt with, I had already prosecuted um, the, the defendant and his company in previous proceedings. So we had that kind of lifestyle situation. And what it resulted in was was taking uh, proceeds of crime proceedings um, in, for some, uh, some in the region of 1.2 million. In, in the end, we, we settled out of court um, and um, we, we did a deal in respect of the, the very substantial costs that had been incurred. But in, that was the case where the defendant received, as far as I'm aware, one of the biggest sentences under the order, which was 20 months imprisonment, and it wasn't suspended. It was a custodial sentence straight away. Well, we'll no doubt revisit even more of the questions uh, that came in on future podcasts. And anyone that wants to get questions on this podcast to Warren can do so. Just go to us on social media using the hashtag FSM podcast and ask us a question and I'll happily ask Warren on a future edition. But before we go, Warren, if people want to get in touch with you or Blackhurst Buds listeners, how can they do so? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter um, and blackhurstbud.co.uk website. Uh, I've got my firesafetylaw.co.uk website as well. Brilliant. Thanks, Warren. Great to catch up with you. See you next time. Thank you, Mark. us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Chartered Fire Engineer Tony Cash, Don Randall of the City of London Crime Prevention Association and also Warren Spencer from Blackhurst Buds Listers for their greatly valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.